thing is gonna win. Well, I know my thing can beat your thing. Are you serious? A toaster can beat a dragon. Toasters can get really hot. Dragons breathe fire. To see how this and other battles end, find my thing can beat your thing on iTunes and Google Play, and send your thing sightings to @thingbeatsthing on Twitter. For MTCBYT news, I'm a news person. Let's do this. Welcome to the Gravity Beard Podcast. This is episode 42. We're recording today in Studio A. Thank you, as always, to our listeners. We appreciate your continued support. Today, our guest is Marty Andrade Jr. He's an author and part of the community of people who have investigated the D.B. Cooper case. So he'll be sharing his opinions and perspectives. He'll also tell us about his interactions with our friend Derek Gotze. And while the two have similar theories in the case, Marty will explain why Derek is missing a very critical piece of the puzzle. Let's get started. This is the Gravity Beard Podcast. Marty, welcome to the Gravity Beard Podcast. Thanks for coming on. No, I'm glad to be on. Let's start by getting to know you a little bit. So you're a conservative, you're an activist, and a self-described political junkie. You use a few interesting words to describe yourself, but I'm particularly interested in neo-Luddite and monarchist. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's from my uh, Twitter account, I believe. I don't it know is. where else that would be. No, that's exactly where that's from. I had, uh, after the 2008 election, I had a lot of things happen to me. Uh, both good and bad, that put my personal life in a turmoil. And then that kind of affected my political outlook. I still consider myself a conservative, but I'm no longer, I, I no longer really identify with like the, like what's been going on now. I'm definitely not a Trump guy, but, uh, you know, I, I, exp- <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's hard to tell somebody, yeah, I'm kind of a monarchist, but not like the monarchist you think I am. Okay. So let's, uh, let's get down to the business at hand. In recent years, uh, you've been investigating the D.B. Cooper case. You authored a book. It's called Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead in America's Only Unsolved Skyjacking. Uh, before we get into the book, d- did I notice that your dad contributed to the book? Yeah, I was very fortunate. Uh, my father was an Air Force pilot, and he was acquainted. He was trained uh, in, in parachuting in the military, and he did between 25 and 30 jumps uh, training jumps in the military. He was familiar with, he was a airline pilot who had been a captain on the 727. He, so he, he was able to contribute to, uh, and, and give me the technical information on many of the aspects of the case that a person like me with a degree in psychology and who has no discernible skill whatsoever would be able to understand, uh, these technical aspects of the case. And he contributed quite a bit to the book. Okay, so we'll get to your specific focus in, in just a second. But before I want, before we got to that, what I wanted to ask you was, is because you've done a lot of different things over the years, what caused you to turn your attention to the D.B. Cooper case? Yeah, well, I got fired. Uh, it was, I, I was working at, at, a, at a Kmart. I'd always had a little bit of interest. I read a book on it way back when I was a teenager, and it had always kind of bounced around in my head. One of the things that really irked me was everyone said that Cooper died. And that struck me as uh, very, very unlikely, just because he was wearing a parachute. Like, parachutes save lives. You know, the, the, the teenage mindset. He was wearing a device that saves your life. Why would he die? So, I got laid off, and I decided, okay, I have to do something with my time. 
And the, the Cooper case just kind of popped out at me. There was a few articles. This was when Larry Carr had opened up the case and I just decided to dive right in. And uh, I got, I got stuck on it for two and a half years. Okay. So your focus is, like you said, primarily been on the jump itself, the timing of it, the location, the probability of survival. Talk about the jump. But then what I want to get into right after that is what you consider to be the last lead in the case. So uh, most of the discussion about the the jump itself has been among skydivers. And the skydiver will point out it's a very difficult jump. It's out of a jet aircraft. It was at night with borrowed gear. Uh, the weather wasn't great. And Cooper had uh, – we don't know how much experience he had with parachuting, but a skydiver would say that's a difficult jump and it's one that is not survivable for an amateur. It would take six or seven jumps. I, I believe Earl Cossey said that. A person with six or seven jumps – uh, would probably survive it. But if he didn't have those six or seven skydiving jumps, he would die. And I decided to try to find a data set of people doing a stupid thing, which is jumping out of an aircraft, and see how, how often does that happen? How often does someone fail to pull the ripcord on a parachute? Well, the best data set for this is in World War II. You had thousands of airmen uh, over Europe, jumping out of aircraft that were typically on fire or spinning out of control, or a lot of them were wounded, and a lot of them were at night. The Royal the Royal Air Force only flew their bombers at night, so you have a huge collection of guys jumping at night in the cold, in the wet. And I found a data, the data set, a website basically that was a devotional website to these airmen who died uh, liberating Denmark from the Nazis, and it had. Every single aircraft that had been shot down over Denmark, and it had followed up and found whether the crewman survived, how he jumped, what their story was. It was a very complete set. And I went through and I looked for what people said happened to Cooper, which is that he went into a spin and that he didn't pull the ripcord. And I, the big conclusion from this is I could not find a single example, not one example of a person who jumped out of an aircraft uh, with other people and didn't pull the ripcord uh, during all of World War II, which was approximately 400 um, Allied airmen in in Denmark. And I forgot how many Axis airmen also jumped. But again, not one example of a true no-pull. And that's a pretty good data set. Yeah, that's that's a complete data set. And that's what's important is I had – the World War II records are all in these giant warehouses. They're paper records. I'd have to travel to Philadelphia or France or Britain. Couldn't do that, but it was nice to have this solid group, 400 people over a single geographical area that was complete over many years. It, and I could, I could look at it from it, the day side, from the night side, and I really didn't find any difference. People, if you jump out of an aircraft and you're wearing a parachute, it doesn't matter if you have a 20 millimeter cannon shell in your leg, which is one example that I found. It doesn't matter if you lose consciousness. Guys were blown out of aircraft. An aircraft would blow up. A guy would wake up in free fall and pull the ripcord. So it didn't matter what the circumstances were. If you're wearing a parachute and there's a handle on it, you pull that handle and the parachute typically deploys. Yeah. And DB Cooper wasn't, wasn't being shot at and he wasn't being shot down. Right. Right. The aircraft wasn't on fire. It was a very controlled situation. The aircraft was flying uh, level. And 
as far as a jet jump goes, it was almost ideal. The, the aircraft was very close to its stall speed, which is scary for the guys in the aircraft, but perfect for the skydiver. And so, given what you just explained about your data set and what you discovered there, then you're not, you're not concerned about the weather or the temperature or even anything, anything related to that. Yeah, people say that it was that you often hear it was negative seven degrees. Well, it was negative seven degrees Celsius, which is not at least the Minnesotan in me is talking here. It's not that cold, right. but he was he would he would only be exposed to that for a few seconds. And uh, if you work in like if you work in like a, a Walmart or something, and you go into their freezer, which is negative ten degrees Fahrenheit, you have a couple of minutes before your hands become too cold to really use. Well. Two or three minutes, Cooper would have been in, you know, in the earth at that point. His jump, his freefall time was between 40 and 60 seconds. So there was no time for him to get, to have any problems related to the cold and the wind chill. So it's very silly. I think they're covering for the FBI because I, I believe the FBI really uh, kind of messed up a lot of things in this case. And it was a bit of a sore spot for him. So it's just easier to say he died, couldn't have survived. And it doesn't matter that we didn't find out who it was because he couldn't spend the money. So talk about the the potential landing location. This is much more difficult. Uh, there's a few theories floating around, but Larry Cargan, a special agent in charge of the case in uh, 2008 to about 2010 or 11, he released all the doc- almost all the documents he had that were pertinent to this. And one of them was an FBI map. This map is a little it's very controversial, but it appears as though it is an accurate representation of the flight. And that means, depending on who you believe and when Cooper jumped, he, he landed right between, um, you know, you have Lake Norman to the north and the Columbia River to the south. He would have landed almost dead center in between these two water hazards. So there's very, there's no vector. And I, I'm sure we'll get into this too for the money to find its way to Tina Bar without Cooper moving it in some way. But definitely, uh, there was, he, he didn't land, uh, Anywhere, first of all, he didn't land anywhere close to where the FBI originally looked for him. And, and secondly, he landed very comfortably. He didn't land in the wilderness, in these tall trees that you hear about, in these cedar forests of the Pacific Northwest. He landed in farm country. He landed very close to the suburbs of Vancouver, Washington, which is a, just a suburb of Portland. Well, it seems like all those circumstances definitely point to, to survivability. No, for sure. And I, if, if I had to put a number on it, I think I put the number at about 90%. And I would actually raise that uh, even higher now based on what we know of, of the timing of the jump and, and where the aircraft was likely at where, when and where he jumped. But I, I don't want to push it too far because there are other theories floating about. And they're, very, they're actually very reasonable. One of them uh, from a man who goes by the handle Robert99 on the D.B. Cooper forums. He's a very intelligent uh, avionics expert or aviation expert, and he says that the aircraft wasn't even, was not bypassing Portland on the west. And it's an interesting theory, one that has very little evidence to support it, but it's it's viable still. Okay, so tell us what you're talking about when you say, when you're referring to the last lead in the case. So, Thomas Kay, who is uh, kind of a, a playboy multimillionaire, he has his he has in his den a electronic basically it's a, an electron microscope. He does a spectroscopy for fun because that's what rich people do. And he was given access by the FBI to the tie. DB Cooper left behind this little 
clip-on tie on the seat on the aircraft that was recovered by the FBI. And, and Tom's like, just, you know, give me some sticky tape. I'll take a look at what's on the tie and we'll find, I'm sure we'll find some uh, particles probably from plants, you know, pollen or something like that. We'll be able to figure out where, where Cooper was from. He doesn't find any pollen, not anything useful anyway, but he does find these metallic particles. Very unusual. They are pure unalloyed titanium. He finds 5000 series aluminum. He finds 500 series stainless steel and in other forms of stainless steel. He finds all sorts of things that, that were unusual. Even today, it'd be unusual to have a tie exposed to these things, but definitely very unusual in 1971. And ever since then, the, in my mind, that has been the key to the case. If we can find somebody who works in that industry, uh, who's a white-collar worker in a blue-collar industry in 1971, especially in the industrial chemicals industry, then we'll find Cooper. And what's interesting about Thomas Kay is he's, he's not a scientist. He doesn't have a scientific background. No, I believe he he made his money selling air guns, uh, paintball yeah, paint, guns. paintball equipment, exactly. So, do you have any insight as to why the FBI gave him access to the tie in the first place? Well, Larry Carr was trying to open source the case. He he was – Larry Carr, especially Agent Larry Carr, his expertise was in bank robbers. And when it comes to solving a bank robbing case, you take, you take all the evidence you have. You show the guy's picture – uh, I've heard about bank robbing cases that were solved by, um, you know, experts noting how a person held their gun, saying, "Well, that person's uh, been police trained, uh, police trained, things like that." It's very open source. You just you throw out all the information you have, and you hope somebody comes back and says, "Yeah, I, I, I know that jacket. I've seen that blue jacket somewhere." And that's what Larry Carr did. So, if you have zero money to investigate the case, and Larry Carr had zero money and almost no time to investigate it, you basically you take all comers. And Thomas K was one of those guys who, who uh, I know that I don't know the entire story behind how it happened, but I, I do know Larry Carr was just needed help. He needed help for free. And uh, Thomas K, again, with electron microscope in his den, was there uh, to offer his assistance. So we should have done this a little bit earlier, but explain who Larry Carr is. Larry Carr. The, so he was the special agent in charge of the case for a few years. This case has been passed along from agent to agent ever since it started. And there have been a number of FBI agents out of, I believe, the Seattle office who have been in charge of this case. Now, most of them didn't like it, uh, particularly the last special agent, uh, Curtis Ng. He did not want to talk to people about it. He was He had never done a press interview he hated it. As far as I can tell, he hated the attention he got from having this case in his in his pocket. Other special agents, they you know, they have varied over the years. I don't know them because I didn't get involved in the case until basically the case was over. But each agent is given this cold case along with other cold cases. And whenever something pops up, they have to look into it. And Larry Carr is one of those guys, but because Larry Carr was also interested in solving the case, he had like I don't want to say fanboy, but that kind of strikes me as he was a fan of this mystery. This was something that really kind of uh, jumped at him, at, and he really wanted to, to tackle this. And that's what happened: is that he ended up going on uh, a a forum called the Drop Zone Forum, which is a forum of skydivers. And at first, at first, he didn't admit to who he was. He just used the handle secret, C-K-R-E-T, secret. It later came out that this was Special Agent Larry Carr feeding this information. And basically, he wanted, 
he wanted guys to to tell him it was the jump survivable. Uh, was this an expert parachutist? You know, what can you tell me as as experts in skydiving? What can you tell me about this case? And I just kind of uh, snowballed from there, and that's how you get the Thomas K intervention, and how you get some of these other interventions, and then. Ever, even though Larry Carr has since moved on with his career, and he was not, from what I can tell, he was not happy about it. He was taken off the case because he got too much media attention, and people realized the FBI might have dropped the ball on this case 30 or 40 years ago. I, was he punished? Was he not punished? That's, he, was, he was taken to a job uh, into surveillance, I believe, in Washington, D.C. It was a promotion, but not really what he wanted to do. There's a lot of rumors. I don't want to get... I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he was he was an unfortunate victim of the interest in this case. And Larry Carr today is still with the FBI. As far as I know, yes. Okay, so so you have in addition to, to Tom K, as you've referenced, you've got plenty of company in the DB Cooper arena, whether it be Bruce Smith or Thomas Colbert, who of course wrote The Last Master Outlaw. Tons of people in the DB Cooper forum and they have other other forums and discussion groups. You know, and what's interesting, I think, about uh, Thomas Colbert is uh, he's invested tremendous resources in a huge team of people and, and may have identified the wrong guy. Uh, do you have any opinions on on his or these other guys' work on the case? I have a lot of opinions. Uh, well, Thomas Colbert is a wonderful man. I have had uh, communications with him. He always gets back to me very, very quickly. He has been only the nicest guy in the world to me. And... I, I cannot say this enough. His book, The Last Master Outlaw, is fantastic. Other than the last couple of chapters, which get a little weird, I don't want to criticize too much. But the book is a fantastic study of a sociopath, uh, Robert Wesley Rackstraw. I don't believe Robert Wesley Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper for a number of reasons. But the book itself was was uh, was, was fantastic. And Thomas Colbert, I, I can't say enough good things about him. Bruce, Bruce Smith, too. Bruce Smith has helped me quite a bit. And I keep a copy of his book nearby uh, as a reference. Um, there are some other characters, though, and I don't want to name names, who are much less pleasant to deal with. Okay, so how to, g- give me just two or three reasons why Robert Rackstraw is not the guy. I, they, Robert Wesley Rackstraw went ahead at some point, he was actually arrested and facing murder charges. I, I, I don't remember if it was his stepfather or his father uh, had gone missing and then his body appeared on his farm, uh, obviously murdered. And there's, there's zero chance that, that Rockstraw didn't murder his, this, this individual. Um, he was the only suspect. He was the only person that made sense. And, uh, he went to trial for it. At some point in the trial, it looked like he was going to be convicted. It looked like he was going to be in, in really deep trouble. And this is something that happens a lot in the Cooper case. When a person is looking at a lot of time, so you get convicted of murder, you're looking at spending a lot of time in jail. You don't want to spend that time in a state prison. You want to go to a federal facility that has money for things and isn't so brutal. The, the state prisons at the time were not well-funded and were kind of miserable so he hinted that if he's convicted or or whatever, that he was D.B. Cooper. I think he even said so outright to a TV crew. Well, 
He didn't get convicted of murder. Uh, he played the the uh, wounded veteran shtick and and was not convicted uh, somehow. I've, this is all explained in The Last Master Outlaw, and I recommend that book to anybody who's interested in, in true crime. And so suddenly he has to back off because now he's not convicted of murder and he can't be D.B. Cooper because he can go to – that's also a capital offense. He can go to prison and be and be executed uh, if he's actually D.B. Cooper. So he, he quickly runs off of that. The FBI took it seriously. The FBI – I now, Rackstraw actually claims that the FBI brought in one of the, the uh, flight attendants to try to ID him and that, that she, she said that it wasn't Cooper. The F, I don't know if that actually happened, but I would say definitely the FBI showed his picture to – um, uh, some of the witnesses, possibly Tina Mucklow, probably, um, one of the passengers, Mitchell. And, um, and they said, no, this is not the guy. He doesn't look like the guy. He's, he was young. He was in his late twenties. Most people put Cooper in his mid forties or even older. Uh, the skin tone is kind of wrong. The eye color is kind of wrong. Uh, the, in psychology, we call the affect or the way he behaved. Definitely wrong. Uh, you actually had an interview with Derek Godsey, and Derek Godsey had uh, – <laughs> it's in the podcast. He pretended to be a, well, we're, we're a actually, we'll, woman. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to Derek in just okay, a few Okay, all right, all right. I won't bring yeah. it up then. But yeah, there's a lot of things pointing away from it, and the evidence that points towards Robert Wesley Rackstraw, none of it's definitive. It's, it is all speculation. Uh, it's kind of the classic thing in this field that defines someone who kind of looks like Cooper, who's tall, has dark hair, and is thin, and say, well, he has a parachuting background. He was, you know, uh, he was in the military. He was a paratrooper or, or whatever, and say, that's yeah, got to be the guy. It has to be the guy. And that's, that's a very wrong way. There's a lot of paratroopers out there. There are a lot of skydiving enthusiasts. And you can't just point your fingers at everyone that looks kind of like Cooper. Okay. So, so I have a question related to that. And in no way am I am I trying to make Thomas Colbert look bad, but but again he has a he has a huge team of people and invested so much time. How how did he get it wrong? Confirmation bias. Okay. Uh, I mean, again, Rackstraw said that he was Cooper. He said that in a television interview, and you have to take that seriously. And he had the skills to do it, and he had the chutzpah or the panache uh, to do it, and. Uh, the, maybe the FBI didn't take it seriously enough, or they didn't investigate enough, or they did uh, a shallow job. And it's good that Colbert took it seriously and, and put together this team. But in the end, you get so invested in a specific person that every, you know, you, you look at, you look at only the evidence that confirms your theories and you ignore the evidence that does not confirm your theories. And that's, that's what happens. So we're all, uh, you know, vulnerable to this. Okay, that's a perfect transition to my next question because one of the comments you made to me in in your email before we did the interview was that people loved talking about specific suspects, but do you believe that that misses important facts about the DB Cooper case and you know inhibits people from actually finding the real person? No, absolutely. So we have every every couple of years we get a lot of media attention. A couple of years ago, it was about a guy named Dick Lepsey who was a grocery store manager that went missing. Uh, before that, I mean, there, there are all of these suspects. Uh, Kenny Christensen is one that, that popped up a few years ago. And we, we get so enra- enwrapped in this that people didn't find out about the Thai evidence until very, very recently, where there was a few articles that went viral about, about, uh, the particles in the Thai and the work that Tom Kay was doing. 
we're talking years, years after Thomas K had found these, uh, these metallic, you know, anti-corrosive metals and said Cooper had to work in a couple of industries. We had, uh, the History Channel special. We had that, um, the Josh Gates special. I forget what his show was called. Um, and we had a, a number of television shows, uh, all of which were about DB Cooper and none of them went into the really important evidence in the case. And that's, and that's very frustrating because we need people. I don't think that the family of the real DB Cooper knew that he was a hijacker. They, they, uh, they probably thought that he was, you know, he, they may, I don't, I don't want, okay. I, I'm, now I'm getting into theories in my book. I'm going to avoid that. And then just say that if Cooper jumped, he came back and survived. He got back to his life and people didn't think anything of it. And so that, that people did not know that something had happened to this individual. And now if we can tell them, we're looking for someone who looked this way, who had this background in this particular industry and who might have been hurt before Thanksgiving or he might have been late to Thanksgiving in 1971, uh, please tell us about this individual. That's what we need. That's the message we need to get out, out there. And by focusing on, on Dick Lepsey, and again, Ross Richardson, who wrote the book on Dick Lepsey, uh, is also a great guy. I don't have anything bad to say about any of these people for advocating for a specific suspect. That's fine. But, uh, the focus needs to be on the physical evidence and getting that message out to people. Okay. Let's talk about Derek Gotzi. When, when did you first hear from Derek? Uh, I, he was on the DB Cooper forum. I don't know how long ago it was. Uh, most people didn't take him seriously. He sent me a number of Twitter messages. I'd have to, I'd have to look back. He did email me a few times too. Uh, he went through a couple of suspects and before finalizing on Klansnick. And I really wish that he had contacted before he contacted the Klansnick family. I wish he had contacted me and asked me, you know, how do I do this approach? Cause at the very least, I could have given him some pointers because I, th- I think he's, he's kind of burned some bridges that he'll never get back. But I would, I would, I would guess a year. Okay, that seems about right. So, are you are you familiar with some of Derek's theories? I'm familiar with most of them. He he sends me every time he he comes up with something new. He'll send me an email or he'll contact me on Twitter. So I I'm fairly familiar. I don't want to speak for him though. No, sir, and I wouldn't ask you to do so. What's interesting is throughout this interview and our, my conversation with you, you've brought up some things that he has kind of discovered or put forth as part of his theory that kind of fit. And, and notwithstanding what you just explained about how people get locked into one person, but he went through a number of different people and eliminated all of them. And maybe he might be falling into that same trap. However, his guy's checking all the boxes. Right. And what was actually great about Derek was when he basically – he eliminated Rackstraw as a suspect because Rackstraw would not have behaved himself with a, um, a younger looking flight attendant, uh, like Cooper did. That was fantastic. I, and I really agree with him that as that the affect, the, the Rackstraw's behavior does not match DB Cooper's behavior. Now, uh, he is working the case. He's working the evidence, which is fantastic. Uh, but I, I worry about suspect mining. You know, we're again, we have a checklist and everyone who makes everyone who who knocks off every every piece of that checklist is is a suspect. And the one piece that's missing is the story is, you know, was this individual late to Thanksgiving in 71? Did he have some kind of weird injury? Did he suddenly have a bunch of money? 
You know, it's not just completing the checklist, which is something that I, I really push and I want to applaud Derek for it. But there has to be something else too. And I, I can't really put a label on it. Suspects fall into two categories. You have the, 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 the suspects that have stories attached to them and you have the suspects that have the checklist attached to them. And I'm looking for the one that has both. And so far, we don't have the one that has both yet. So you don't think Derek's suspect has the story? Well, we, we'll never know because uh, he he didn't uh, approach the family. It's it's quite possible that I don't want to criticize him too much here, but you don't go right out and say I think your father or I think your grandfather was DB Cooper. That's not the approach that you use. You go up to the family <laughs> and say, Hey, look, I'm a DB Cooper researcher. Um, there's new evidence that shows that Cooper was like an engineer or something. And I know this sounds crazy, but, you know, your your uh, father or grandfather worked in Boeing. He worked on the 727. Did he ever talk about the Cooper case? Uh, did he have any opinions on it? Did, did uh, he ever encounter the FBI and talk to them? Because uh, I'm just collecting stories right now. And that I think that would have been that would have been more helpful because uh, then they could they could they could even mention like yeah no they, he was uh, you know, he was acting real strange in in seventy one and maybe it was because the FBI was you know was bothering him about being DB Cooper or something like that just anything to get a, a little tidbit of story out of him uh, would have been very very helpful and and show or they could have just said hey he never talked about it he you know we didn't have any money back then uh, he was not you know. He, he was always up at 6 a.m. and he went to bed at 10 p.m. and everyone knew where he was and he, he walked the dog at the same time of day. We don't have any of that information. And that's what happens when you, when you go out and have wild accusations is you shut down your sources. I was able to talk to a lot of engineers at another company, Tektronics, uh, that Thomas K. linked to the evidence on the tie. Uh, we're talking about dozens of people. I emailed them, talked to a few of them on the phone. And I was able to kind of figure out that D.B. Cooper almost certainly didn't work at Tektronics. The people at Tektronics were talking about the Cooper case. It was huge. And even there's even an individual there that looked like D.B. Cooper and people talked about it and it was reported to the FBI, but he wasn't actually D.B. Cooper. So they had to stop doing it. That's, that's information that, that's, that's very useful. Uh, that, that sort of gossipy stuff that everyone has, they hold on to it. We're talking 45 years later. They're still talking about that one guy uh, at Tektronix who looked like Cooper and had to talk to the FBI. So that's all very, very valuable. And that's that's how you run these sources. That's how you, you investigate. Uh, and he doesn't have the experience. And I, I don't mean, again, I don't want to criticize him too much here. It's something that we all do when we first start out as we make mistakes. But we're not going to get that story now because the family's not talking to him. So do you think that Derek's aggressive approach may have may prevent anybody from appropriately approaching the Klasnik family? Almost almost certainly. I I I would not try it at this point. They don't want to talk they clearly don't want to talk to anybody about DB Cooper. So we're not going to get that story. Uh I I think the best that he can do with Klansnik is he he's got a few of those check boxes. But the question is, was he exposed to the yttrium? You know, uh, was he ex exposed to the phosphors? Was he, would he have been exposed to the raw titanium? We're not sure. Um, that's something that he could probably still find out. And if you finally get evidence that he was exposed to this giant family of chemicals found on the tie, or just a picture of him wearing that tie, uh, that's, then he's got something. Then he's got something. 
So you've you've carefully outlined the holes that still need to need to be filled in terms of missing in the narrative or whatnot. Do you think Derek's gotten closer than anyone else? I'm not sure. I get I do get contacted pretty much every month with a new individual, a new Cooper suspect, and I don't have the resources to investigate each one of them. Uh, it's, it's a yes or no question. I can't say probabilistically, well, there's an 18% chance that Klanzik was Cooper, or there's a 72% chance that Klanzik was Cooper. I, either he was or he wasn't. So, uh, do I think, uh, Derek was, had the right thinking? Yes. Uh, do I think that Klanzik is Cooper? No, not right now. You don't. Why, why do you not think he is? Uh, again, it wasn't, there was, first of all, there was no story. Uh, I think that that's a big thing because family members have come forward. Uh, there's other Cooper suspects where family members were like, this guy was hurt on Thanksgiving. It, it was weird. He doesn't have that. Uh, there's no evidence. I think Klanzik was just too good of a guy. He was, you know, and, and this is, this might be fallacious, but he, he was a churchgoer, uh, very charitable. He had a very good job. And that's an important thing to remember is you're not going to risk a very good job that supports your family uh, for a one-time payoff. Certainly not jumping out of an aircraft. Did he have uh, the background? Did he, did he, would he have done it? He jumped out of an aircraft before during World War II. So of course he would have jumped out of an aircraft. That was no problem. Uh, it's, it's difficult, but for the most part, he didn't have the, the, the background. He did uh, this je ne sais quoi, this, this thing that we're looking for of an individual who was in a hard spot, who needed money right now, despite the fact that they were an engineer or a manager or somebody who, who had had good income most of their lives. This guy had a good income his entire life and, uh, there's no reason, there's no motive. Uh, that's, and that's something else to consider. So that's how I was going to point out. The main thing that's missing is motive in this case, right? Right. Okay. Do you have any insight into why after 45 years, the FBI finally decided to close the case last year when they did? I take it. I take them at face value. They don't want to be bothered with it. They have important things to do when they say that, you know, they're, they're trying to prevent terrorist attacks. I believe them. I don't want to get, I don't want to take resources away from, uh, a very, the very important work that the FBI does. So face value, it was getting a lot of media attention. They weren't getting anywhere. They didn't have the evidence, uh, to take this to trial anymore. I think that there's a number of attorneys on, uh, on the Cooper forum who say that a first year law student could win this case because they could say there's exculpatory evidence that the FBI lost, i.e. the cigarette butts that would have DNA on them. There, the FBI doesn't have or has lost most of the information. Um, yeah, so there's there's no way they could have convicted anybody for this case except with this rock solid uh, evidence, like having a bill or having the parachute, and then claiming that oh by the way I, I'm DB Cooper. Then they might get a conviction, but otherwise the case was completely untriable. And if a case is untriable, the FBI is in the business of taking case to trial. They have to give it up. They had to give it up. And that made sense to me. Unfortunately, they boxed all the stuff up. They threw it in Washington, D.C. to make sure that we couldn't get to it when this case should have gone to uh, probably the Smithsonian. There's an individual on the Cooper Forums who goes by Georgia who believes that the Smithsonian had the resources. It's an American uh, touchstone of the 1970s and that they could have kept the, the investigation alive and had uh, and kept the open source alive so that guys like me could look at it. And that, that is missing. So it is unfortunate that they took the route that they did, but I understand why. 
So will this case ever be solved? And if so, what would be the catalyst that would cause that to happen? I am very optimistic. I think this new evidence that Tom Kay has found is is very strong. Uh, I think what we're going to – we're not going to have anything foolproof. We're not going to have the parachute. We're not going to have the money. We're not going to have physical evidence. But we're going to find someone who who fixed, who has the, the entire checklist is just checked off. And also there's some some sort of story connected to him that we hadn't heard about. So – uh, we're going to be able to look at somebody's background and say they had the skills that Cooper had, they had the knowledge that Cooper had, and there's a story to them. We can put them in the Pacific Northwest and look at the picture. The biggest thing is a picture of this individual. And that the capstone to this would be if we can get a picture of that individual wearing the tie, which has a, a, a tie clip and there's evidence that there was a tie tack attached to it. We could photo match this tie. That would be the kicker. And I think that would solve the case. Well, you know, James Klansnick was supposedly around the right age, but he died in 2014 at the age of 94. I mean, anybody that you would find would be around the same age. And I mean, they're not going to be alive more than likely, right? No, almost certainly not. So what we're looking for now are family members, you know, people who knew this individual, either, you know, children, nephews, this sort of thing, and that, that, that there's some sort of story attached to it and... The other thing is pictures. There are a lot of pictures. This is, this happened again with this, um, this Tektronics case. I spent a couple of months on, on the Tektronics thing. There were thousands of pictures for us to go through looking for the tie, the tie clip, uh, that, that we know is associated with the Cooper tie and looking for someone who looks like Cooper. I went through these manuals and these yearbooks and I went through, uh, employee pictures looking for this tie. And I didn't even think that he worked at Tektronics, but you know, you want to be thorough. That's going to happen. We're going to get that story. We're going to get a person with a background and then we can go out there and, and say, Hey, look, does anyone have an employee, um, you know, yearbook or, you know, one of these employee, uh, picture books? Cause th- these companies were communities. People used to, used to have, uh, you go bowling with their, with their coworkers and they had parties and they had, uh, you know, these, these Christmas parties and this, this sort of thing, there's going to be evidence out there. There's going to be something that we can, that we can connect to the DB Cooper case. And I'm, again, I'm very optimistic, but we have to find there's, you know, how many trillions of pictures are out there. We have to find out which pot to go looking in for the, for the picture. Did we miss anything? Is there anything else I should have, should have asked you? Everything, the things that I, and I, I want to, Two people to take away two things from this broadcast. One, the case is solvable still, and that there's a story out there that we have to find, uh, and that they should pay attention to these stories about Cooper's tie. And secondly, that Cooper almost certainly survived the jump. There's just no, there's no place to put a dead body that would not have been found by now. Uh, and that people who wear a parachute and they jump out of an aircraft, it doesn't matter. Uh, the situation, they pull that ripcord. That is the major finding and the thing that I that I spent two years trying to convince some of these people on the Cooper Forum of is that you wear a parachute, you pull the ripcord, and there's strong evidence for that. So those, those two things I want people to know. So I have uh, Robert Rackstraw's cell number. You think I should call him and have him on the show? <laughs> Why not? Uh, <laughs> he sounds like an interesting guy. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he'll admit to being Cooper, but give it a shot. 
The book is called Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead in America's Only Unsolved Skyjacking by Martin Andrade Jr. Uh, it is on Amazon. Uh, where else can you find the book? Uh, right now it is it is on on Amazon. I don't know of any other places. I do have a website where I keep up with the, with the D.B. Cooper case. It is uh, martinandrade.wordpress.com. And Andrade is spelled A-N-D-R-A-D-E. Great. Is there anything else you want to promote before we go? No, buy the book. Please. Write a review <laughs> on Amazon, too. Absolutely. So is, is this going to be your primary focus for a while, or what, what do you have next in the works? I, I like to take a break after finishing a book. I actually wrote a couple of novels before I wrote the Scooper book. I'm going to probably stay in true crime. I've gotten a lot of good reaction and, and a lot. There is a devoted fan base to true crime writing, and there is an unsolved murder in West Central Minnesota that I'm going to take a look at and see if I can't uh, shed some light on that. And there's some other interesting you know, true crime cases. So that's where I'm going. Well, and it certainly there doesn't seem to be a more popular niche in podcasting than true crime right now. Well, that's good to know. I've spent a few years on the sidelines here. I'm trying to get back into things. Well, and and, and definitely uh, thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Then that's how it's going to close. Just I want to say, man, thank you so much for giving us your time. We really, really appreciate you coming on the Gravity Beer podcast, and you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you, sir. You bet. The zoo removed the lions from their enclosure, but it still took a couple of days before Lou was willing to come out from the rock formation where he was hiding. He was starving, sleep-deprived, and in a bit of a daze. They took him to the hospital for a couple of days for observation. I went to visit him, and that's when he delivered the worst news possible. He decided to quit, citing that podcasting was just too dangerous. So, once again, we're back to square one, looking for a new intern for the show. Let us know if you have anyone. Hey, if you're a creator or a fan of independent podcasts, you should join the Underdog Podcast community. You can find the discussion group by searching that name on Facebook or on Twitter at Underdog Pods. You can listen to the Gravity Beard Podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you can see podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Gravity Beard. And, of course, we're on Facebook. You can also email us at contactthebeard at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you. And please stop by iTunes and subscribe to the show. Our theme song is Sophomore Makeout by Silent Partner. In the intro, we used the song I Still Want You by Everett Almond. Both of these songs are on the YouTube audio library. And now we're treating you to Quitting Time by Patrick Lee, CC by NCSA 3.0. Next week will be another installment of Bad Date Stories with Grace and Scott. This time, Scott tells his story. It's a bit of a roller coaster. It starts out great, then gets quite horrible. You'll have to listen to find out how it turns out in the end. Then we'll have a special treat for you, the listener, as we celebrate another anniversary of sorts. It's been one year since we aired one of our most popular episodes ever. That's right, Greg, the interview with Chris and Roxanne. This is the Gravity Beard Podcast. It's what your ears will want to be listening to. This is the Gravity Beard Podcast.